Well, good morning, church family. Good to see all of you here. My name is David, and I serve here as lead pastor. It's my privilege to do so and my privilege to teach on Sunday mornings, and uh, glad to do that again this morning. You know, at Trinity Assembly, our vision, our vision statement at this church is gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. Gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. And I was thinking about that word transformation this week as I was studying this passage in Luke chapter 8. And we are a society that loves stories about transformations. We love it. Think about some of the shows that we watch, some of the reality television shows that we watch, shows like Fixer Upper, where anybody ever watch Fixer Upper, where they, they take a home that needs a serious transformation, and, and in 60 minutes, they transform it into this beautiful, beautiful home for this family, this excited family. We love, uh, we love shows like Kitchen Nightmare and Restaurant Impossible, where chefs like Gordon Ramsay and Robert Irvine come in, and, and they take these struggling, failing restaurants, and they, they turn, them around, turn them around. We love transformation. Even the movies that we watch, some of the classic movies like Rocky, which is the story of this transformation of this man who's this loser, this nobody, to the world champion of, uh, in boxing, and, and, and movies like My Fair Lady. Anybody like My Fair Lady, where uh, this, this woman is literally transformed from someone who doesn't have any etiquette in any culture uh, to someone who can fit right in at the fanciest of events? Transformation. Okay, I have a couple friends that last year opened up a, uh, a gym out on Erie Boulevard called the Fit Body Boot Camp. And, uh, you know, those, those gyms, they promise transformation, right? Isn't that the whole reason why you sign up and you pay money and you go to a gym is, is for the transformation? And ha- have any of you ever seen the before and after pictures? You've seen those online where somebody takes a picture of themselves before they started going to the gym and then they take this picture after they go to the gym and they look very, very different. And uh, when my friends opened up this gym, they're like, we wish you would start coming out here. I said, why? They're like, well, we want you to get healthy. And then they also said, because you also, you, take a, you would take a great bef- before picture. A great before picture. <laughs> like your before, your before and after pictures would be awesome. And so uh, I kind of joked, anytime I'm, I'm eating something I shouldn't be eating, I say, I'm working, I'm working on my before picture. I'm, you know, I'm not quite there yet. I need to get to the place where my before picture is, is, is as desperate as it needs to be so that my after picture will be impressive. We love transformation. In Luke 8, verses 26 to 39, is a story about one of the most amazing transformations in a person that we see in all of the Gospels. And as we look at this story this morning, there's two questions we want to answer. And these really are the two questions that we should always answer whenever we open up the scriptures and study any text. And the first question is this, in this story, what do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus? And then secondly, what do we learn about ourselves? It's important that we ask both questions. It's also, I think, important that we ask the questions in that order. First, what do we learn about Jesus Secondly, what do we learn about ourselves? So I'm going to read this story to you from Luke chapter 8. It's a little bit of a longer story, but it's interesting, it's, it's dramatic, it's, it's bizarre, so I think you'll be fine following along with me. Beginning in verse 26, I'm reading from the ESV translation. It says this, Then they, they being Jesus and his disciples, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land... There met him a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, 
but among the tombs. The tombs were where people were buried, so amongst the graveyard. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and he was bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So the demons are saying, don't send us to the abyss, let us enter into these pigs. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. It's quite a story, isn't it? I was uh, having coffee this week with a friend who wasn't familiar with the story. And so I began to explain the story to him. And he said, whoa, that'd make a great movie. (laughs) Well, that's really, really dramatic. What is this all about? So the two questions we want to answer this morning is, what do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about ourselves? There's two things that we learn about Jesus. And the first thing that we learn about Jesus from this story is this. Jesus is intimately personal. He's intimately personal. A couple weekends ago, I was flying out to Kansas City to speak at a conference, and I was flying through Atlanta. I like to fly Delta, partly just because I like the airline, but also I like to go through Atlanta for two reasons. This time of the year, with the weather, you want to fly through somewhere south. Even if it doesn't feel direct to go from Syracuse to Atlanta to Kansas City, you don't want to go through Chicago, believe me. And so I always try to fly Delta through Atlanta. But the other reason I like Atlanta is I love the food scene at the Atlanta airport. The Atlanta airport has the best food out of any airport that I've traveled through in America. And Atlanta has, uh, well, they they had Chick-fil-A, and that was, you know, Chick-fil-A, we have it here now, but for a long time we didn't, so it was always exciting except for when you flew on a Sunday, and then it was depressing. Um, They have Shake Shack there. They have all kinds of sit-down restaurants you might like, like P.F. Chang's and Cheesecake Factory. It's a great airport for food. And my favorite, by the way, if you're ever flying through Atlanta and you have time, you got to find this pizza place called Verasano's. It's it's amazing, amazing uh, wood oven pizza. So as I was uh, flying into Atlanta, I, I was beginning to think, where am I going to eat lunch, you know? And uh, I, I got off the plane, and I, I was looking at some of the re- list of the restaurants that were there, and I noticed a new restaurant, Bobby Flay's Burger Palace. Now, I had been to a Bobby's Burger Palace in Philadelphia, but that's the only place I had been to in one. And Bobby's Burger Palace is famous because they crunchify their burgers. And what that means is, they, if you ask them to, they put potato chips on top of your burgers. If you've never had potato chips on your burger before, 
your blood pressure is probably better than mine, but, but you, should, you should definitely try it at least once in your life. And so I, I was so excited. I, I actually switched terminals just to go to Bobby Flay's Burger Palace. And so I go in there and I order and I sit down. And of course, in airport restaurants, sometimes they sit you with other people because everybody's going so fast and they're trying to... So I sat right across from this guy. And we started talking, and we talked for about 30 minutes about his work and what I do and his family. He lives in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and he was flying back from the West Coast. And we had this 30-minute conversation. We finished our burgers. We stood up to go. And the last thing I asked him was, hey, by the way, what's your name? (laughs) You ever done that? You have like an entire conversation with somebody, and you realize, I never even learned their name. And what's your name is one of the most personal questions you can ask somebody. It it reveals, really, your name is so crucial to your identity, to who you are. Now, think about this story. Jesus gets off the boat. He walks into this, really, this is is not home court advantage for for Jesus and his disciples anymore. This is more of a Gentile-populated community over here in the Gerasenes. So he walks off the boat. He walks into the scene, and picture this scene. Uh, A naked man comes running at him, screaming. And we know from the other accounts of this story in Matthew and Mark, this man would cut himself because of the demon possession. So this man was bleeding. This man was not well-groomed. He lived in tombs. He did not live in a house. This man did not smell good. He did not look right. Uh, he, w- he would have had chains attached to his arms and his legs that he had recently broken off. And so this man is running toward Jesus and his disciples, and he's screaming at him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in public... And I saw a naked, screaming, bleeding man with change attached to him running towards me. I would have a long list of questions. But the first one probably wouldn't be, what's your name? What's your name? We read the story so many times and we kind of skip past this, but I think we have to pause and realize, look what Jesus does here. He stops and he looks at him and he asks him something so normal, so personal. There's something so humanizing about this question when Jesus looks at this man and he looks past all the craziness and just simply says, what is your name? You know, I read this story and I was wondering to myself, how long had it been since this man had been asked that question? How long had it been since someone had asked him his name? Did he even know his name anymore? We, I think, tend as people to look past who people are and see what they've done. We look past people, we look past who they are, and we see what they've done. And once we know something about them, what they've done, how they feel on a certain issue, how they live their lives, we categorize them, right? We lump them in, we, we characterize them, we demonize them, we dehumanize them by putting them in these generic categories. And we basically look at people and say, you know, you are what you've done. And as soon as I know that you've done something that I don't agree with, or you live in a way that I don't agree with, I can't, I don't even want to, I don't even need to know your name because I know everything I need to know about you because I know what you've done. And we, we tend as a people to be that way. But here's the good news about Jesus and how he does things. Jesus actually looks past what you've done to see who you are. Jesus looks past what you've done because he wants to see who you are. He wants to know your name. What's your name? Jesus is intimately personal. There's a, there's a saying out there that I've heard a lot of different preachers say that the devil knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. Isn't that beautiful? And this is so wonderful about Jesus that he treats us as individuals, that he stops and says, what's your name? Now, when Jesus asks for a question, he's not looking for information. 
Jesus was omniscient. He knew all things. When God asks a question, it's not because God lacks information like you and I do. When Jesus asks a question, he's not looking for information. What he's trying to do is he's trying to actually remind this man, you have a name. You are someone. You are more than what you've done. You are more than what you've become. You've become something less than human. Hasn't he at this point in the story? Wouldn't we say he looks a little bit less than human? He lives out in nature. He wears no clothes. He doesn't have normal relationships. You've become something less than human. But Jesus wants to see him restored to his full humanity, to being an image bearer of God, to be fully human. Sometimes we think, well, if we become Christians and we become spiritual, we become less human. But Jesus actually wants to make us fully human. He wants us to, because to be human means to what? To bear God's image. That's how we were created, in his image, to bear his image and to extend his reign and his rule throughout all of creation. And so in Jesus, we become not less of ourselves, but more of ourselves, more fully human. St. Irenaeus said it this way, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. This man was not fully alive anymore. He was dead inside. He didn't know who he was. And Jesus, instead of looking past what he'd done, instead of looking past who he was, he stopped and said, what is your name? So the first thing we learn about Jesus is he's intimately personal. But the second thing we learn here is that Jesus is infinitely powerful. He's infinitely powerful. Ultimately, at the heart of this story is a power showdown. This is a power showdown. On one side, you have this demon-possessed man. On the other side, you have Jesus. This demon-possessed man, he's so strong that he can't be chained. I mean, he literally has supernatural strength because of the demon possession that allows him to break, uh, to break his chains. Uh, they, they didn't even, um, that he's so strong that, I don't know if you noticed in the text, but the demons didn't even leave him at first. There was a time where Jesus was telling the demons to go and they were holding on because there was so much strength and there was so much, they, he, he, he was so powerful. And when he said, my name is Legion, what did that mean? Well, what was a Legion? A Legion was a group of 6,000 soldiers. So we don't know if that literally meant that there were 6,000 demons in him. That's not the point. The point is, is that there was a lot of power inside of this. And you might have looked at this from the outside. Here's this powerful, out-of-control, demon-possessed man running towards Jesus, this sort of peasant-traveling rabbi. It didn't look like a fair fight. And one of the things I think is interesting about this story is, do you notice that the disciples are eerily, eerily quiet? <laughs> a lot of stories the disciples pipe up. They kind of say something. Jesus, what about this? What about that? It's usually dumb, but they usually say something. This time, they're like, there's not a sick, Luke, Matthew, Mark, none of, them none of them remember the disciples saying anything. Why? The disciples probably were like all in a line behind Jesus. Like, you got this one, Jesus. You got this one. This one's, this, this one's on you, right? This man comes at him powerful. But when we look at this story, what do we see about Jesus? He's always and he's fully in control. There's no panic. There's no mustering up of strength. There's no recording here that Jesus raises his voice that Jesus amps himself up like a pro wrestler before a match, smacking himself on his body and slapping himself across his face and kind of screaming, you got this, Jesus, you got this. There's none of that. Why? Because Jesus is infinitely powerful. And when you're infinitely powerful, you don't have to work yourself up to deal with other powers. You can just speak in power and in authority. Jesus is fully in control. Thousands of demons couldn't move an inch without the permission of Jesus. They begged him. They knew he had the power. Please don't send us into the abyss. You know, the abyss, I, this is a weird story, by the way. I studied it all week, and you probably have questions that I'm not going to answer in this message. 
And part of the reason is we don't know some of this. We don't understand all of this story. But the abyss was apparently a place that the demons knew that if they went there, it was, they were done. They weren't getting out. And what's interesting is that in this culture at this time, a lot of people thought of the sea or a big body of water as the abyss. And they thought that spirits could actually be captured in water. And once they went into water, they could not get out of water. Now, I don't know if that's true, if that was a superstition, but it's interesting because they say, Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. And Jesus is like, all right, no problem. Go hang out in those pigs. And then all of a sudden those pigs just run straight into the water, <laughs> into the abyss. <laughs> Maybe Jesus has had a laugh at them. But what do we, what do we make of these pigs? This, this, this part of the story, this strange part of the story. There's a lot of theories, right? Pigs were unclean for the Jewish dietary laws. So some people say, well, maybe, these were, maybe, there, were, um, maybe there was a compromise issue here. Maybe there were uh, Jewish people who were raising pigs to profit off of Gentiles. But, but that's not in the text, so we don't know. That's just conjecture. Maybe this was about exposing the heart and the priorities of the townspeople, which we'll see eventually it does. But here's what we know it means for sure. When you see these pigs, and, and I forget if it's Matthew or Mark, it gives us the exact number. I think it's 2,000 pigs, 2,000 pigs. You know, I thought, that's a lot of bacon. That's a lot of wasted bacon. <laughs> makes me a little sad, makes me a little sad. But when we look at what happens, here's what we know for sure. What was inside that man was powerful. If it went into 2,000 pigs and caused them to run down, and by the way, if you go to this part if you go to this territory today, this, if you go to this land today, you can actually see the cliff where they, would have, where they would have run down. And look at the power inside the pigs. Look at the power that was inside the man. Here's what we learn. Uh, number one, it wasn't made up. It wasn't in his head. Some people think, well, every problem in our lives is just psychological. It's just emotional. It's just this. This, was, this, was a, this is a spiritual issue. Like C.S. Lewis, when he talks about uh, supernatural. He says there's two mistakes people make with the supernatural. One is like an overinterest, an unhealthy interest in it, what he would call a superstition, where you get Christians who are enamored with and obsessed with angels and demons and chasing after demons and trying to find demons under every single stone and seeing angels everywhere and all the time. There is a superstition that's not healthy because it actually distracts from the centrality of Christ. But there's also what C.S. Lewis calls a substition, which is a naturalism, which is a uh, sort of a, a writing off of the supernatural. And when we, when, when, we, when we see what happens to these pigs, we realize this was not psychological. This was not in this man's heads, head. This was the real deal. This was real supernatural, demonic possession, and it was enormous. And Jesus doesn't roll up his sleeves. He just deals with it because he has such power. Now, here's what it means for us this morning. The same Jesus this morning can walk into your life with that power. Walks into your life with that power. The power to speak freedom. Some of us are bound up. We're not free. And there are things that have power over us. And I'm telling you that Jesus is infinitely power, powerful over the things that bind you up. He has the power to restore you. He has the power to make you fully alive, to restore your humanity, your decency, your dignity. And Jesus has the power to destroy the very things that are destroying you. That's the sort of power this Jesus has because he's intimately personal and he's infinitely powerful. Okay, so that's what we learn about Jesus. What do we learn about ourselves in this story? And we have to see ourselves in this story in three places, all right? Let me say them and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. First thing is this. You have to actually see yourself in the man, the demoniac, before he met Jesus. 
See, we love these transformation stories because they're dramatic and they're memorable and it's like pigs falling into the water. It's just like super cool. But there's actually a real danger when we look at these stories. And here's the danger. The, da- the danger is this. We, conv- we convince ourselves, I don't have anything in common with that man. That's his story, but that's not my story. He's, re- he's a real mess, but I'm not, I wasn't that much of a mess. Yeah, I wasn't perfect when Jesus found me. I wasn't perfect. I did a few things I shouldn't have done, but I wasn't possessed by thousands of demons, except when people cut me off in traffic, or uh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't running around outside screaming and naked, you know, at least not since college. I haven't been doing any of that. So we read this story and we go, that's good for him. That's great for him. Isn't that cool how Jesus is personal? Isn't that cool how Jesus is powerful? That's not my story, but hold on. It is your story. And the real danger here is that we wouldn't see ourselves in this man. Earlier this week, I was reading from one of my devotionals called New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp. I think it was on Tuesday, and he said this. We all work hard to convince ourselves that we are better off than we are. We all want to believe that we are not that sinful after all. We compare ourselves to those who seem more sinful than us, like demon-possessed naked men. We rewrite our history to make ourselves look better than we really are. We list our good deeds to ourselves. We argue to ourselves and to others that what looked like sin was not sin at all. What is this? It is us working to convince ourselves that we don't really need the amazing grace of a faithful, loving Savior. The same power that Jesus needed to set this man free from his demons, Jesus used to set you free from yours. And I, I use the term, I'm using the t- term demons loosely here. I'm not saying that you literally were possessed or by demons, but I'm, I'm using it in terms of the things that bound us up, right? The things that controlled us. You know, when we look at this story, we have to remind ourselves, not all chains are visible. You can't see all chains. Not all sicknesses show themselves. We know this both in the medical world and the spiritual world. People can be terribly sick on the inside, and we don't know. And, and not all sins are socially unacceptable. And not all sins are even religiously unacceptable. And so we look at this story, we can't distance ourselves from him because we say, well, I don't have those sort of chains, but maybe your chains are invisible. I don't have that sort of sickness. Well, maybe your sickness just isn't showing itself. You figured out how to control it and how to medicate it. Or I don't do things that are unacceptable, but maybe you do things that are socially acceptable, but actually it, re- it reveals a bondage in your heart. And as I, was, as I was wrestling with this text, I thought about this, that there are some demons, again, I'm using the term loosely, some demons make us dysfunctional, right? This story. That's a high level of dysfunction. There are some demons that make us dysfunctional, but I think there are actually some demons that make us functional. There are some demons that actually make us functional, that actually make us get through our day, that actually make us get through our lives. And those are, in my opinion, more dangerous because you don't see them. So ask yourself this. Any, anything, anything that you over-rely on, anything that you have an a, a out-of-control desire for just to get through your day, just to function, it has you in bondage and it owns you. It could be things like, uh, binging on a television show just to get through the evening. It could be a thing like over, uh, you know, um, a certain thing that you that you, you eat or you, that you you eat too much or you work out too much or you do this, you do that. It can be all sorts of things. But and, and I'm not trying to like say like every little thing in your life is a demon. That's not what I'm saying at all, of course. But what I'm saying is there are things that we learn to rely on as human beings just to get us through our day, and we have to be willing to examine those things and look closer at them. 
Because there are some demons that make us dysfunctional, but then there are some quote-unquote demons that actually make us functional, that actually help us live and make sense of things. And what do we learn here? When we look at this man and we see ourselves in there, here's what it means. We need to be honest about our need for transformation. Not just one time, but all the time. God, transform us. Gospel transformation, remember, gospel transformation where? In every area of my life. There's always more areas of our life that we need to experience gospel transformation. There's always more. God help us. So we have to see ourselves in the man before he met Jesus, but we also have to see ourselves in the man after he met Jesus. Well, this story in Luke chapter 8 is recorded in each of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic gospels because they are very similar, and many people believe they shared a similar source. In fact, most, most scholars believe that Matthew and Luke had access to Mark's writings when they wrote Matthew and Luke. One of the things that's interesting about this story is if you were to go home and read Matthew and Mark's version of the story, you'll see discrepancies. There's differences. I forget which one, but one of them actually mentions two demon-possessed men. And then there's other things that are different, like the one includes the idea of him cutting himself. And some people look at that and go, oh, see, that's, that's why you can't trust the Bible, because it's, it's discrepancies. It's, there's, there's different details. And you know what it's really truly indicative of when you see those differences? It's indicative of the nature of this writing, which is it's an eyewitness report. And three different people can eyewitness the same event and walk away with sort of different observations and different emphases. And they each were trying to make different points. If anything, if these stories were identical to each other, that would actually be more indicative of some sort of a effort to push an agenda through false stories, right? When everybody's telling the exact same story, it's actually an indicator that they got together, they put their heads together and they said, listen, let's make sure we get all our details the same so people believe our story. But Matthew and Luke, who had Mark's story, they told it from their version because it was an eyewitness account. And when we look at this story, in all three of the gospels, the story is always recorded in the same place, directly after the story of Jesus calming a storm on the Lake of Galilee. And what's neat about this is both stories the story of Jesus calming the storm and Jesus dealing with this demoniac, they display Jesus' power and compassion to rescue people from chaos and destruction of all kinds. See, don't you know in life there's different types of storms? There's natural storms and there's supernatural storms. There's storms outside of us and there's storms inside of us. And Jesus saves us from both types of storms. That's what we see in this story. And it says that this man was healed the Greek word here, sozean, actually implies that it's not just a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual healing, but actually it's the word saved, that this man was saved. He was radically changed after his encounter with Jesus. And what's cool is that when the story ends, where do we find this man? Where is he? He's sitting at Jesus' feet. Well, what, what's, the, what's the significance of that? The significance is that in that culture, when you sat at someone's feet, it was a representation that you were a disciple of that person. That person was your rabbi, and you would sit at the feet of your rabbi to learn and to be discipled. And, and, and rabbis back then, they would travel. There were other people like Jesus, rabbis, that would travel, and they would have disciples that would follow them. And they always would get the most impressive disciples so that when somebody would see a rabbi sitting somewhere in public and all these disciples around his feet, they would say, oh, look how impressive his disciples are. But we look to the Gospel of Luke. Who do we see sitting at Jesus' feet? In chapter 7, it's a sinful woman. In chapter 8, it's a restored demoniac. Later in this chapter, it's a desperate father. 
In chapter 10, it's a woman who's uh, not doing really what she's supposed to be doing according to her culture. And then in chapter 17 of Luke, it's a Samaritan, not even a Jewish person, what they would have considered a half-breed sitting at Jesus' feet. And what we see here is that when we look at Jesus' community of disciples, it's, it's a radically new type of community. It's not impressive people. It's not people who have pedigree. It's not people who have great stories. It's people that know that they've been transformed. It's people that know before I was blind, but now I see. Before I was possessed, but now I am free. The question for us when we look at this man is this, am I seated at Jesus' feet? Am I really seated at his feet? Is he truly my teacher, my rabbi, my Lord? Am I learning of his ways? And as I look around at those who are seated with me, am I okay with them not looking like me? Am I okay with the other people sitting at Jesus' feet not being like me? Not, maybe not, not, not helping my social status advance. We're defined in community not by the things we have in common, but by the simple thing of the love of Jesus, that he's rescued us, that he's transformed us. You know, earlier I joked about before and after pictures. Can you imagine this demoniac's before picture? If they could have got him to stand still long enough. His before picture and his after picture. Before the man had many demons, after the man had none. Before the man wore no clothes, after he was clothed. Before he lived among the tombs, after he was restored to his home and probably to his family. Before he, was, he accosted Jesus and he shouted at him and he was in his face. And afterwards, he's at his feet, sitting to listen and to learn. Before the demons controlled him and seized him. And afterwards, it says that he was seated in his right mind, fully restored. In response of the saved man, I love what he does. He, he comes up to Jesus and while the townspeople are begging Jesus to leave... He's begging Jesus, can I go with you? He's like, I, I, I want to go with you. And Jesus says something really interesting. Jesus says, no, stay. He says to him, go, through, go back to your town and tell everyone how much God has done for you. And the last verse says, he went back telling everyone how much Jesus had done for him. When you have an experience with Jesus, you recognize he's not just a good man, not just a good teacher, not just a good example. He's God. And he went back telling everybody. And we see that Jesus has a heart here for the people, for these Gentiles. He says, don't come with me. There's a lot of reasons why it wouldn't have been good for this Gentile man to come back with Jesus for his ministry. It would have been a major issue. It would have really further discredited his ministry. But I think really the heart of it was Jesus loved that town. He loved those people. Even though they begged him to leave, he wanted them to know the power that this man had experienced. And so as it said to this man, hey, your life has been radically changed. Nobody's gonna be able to make the impact in your town like you are. And by the way, that's true for you too. As God radically transforms your life, you have a unique opportunity to go back to your friends, back to your family, back to the people who knew you before Jesus' power got a hold of you and they can look at you and go, man, what happened? And you can tell them, here's the things that Jesus has done for me. And this is what it means to live on mission, to make disciples. And here's this saying that I think of often that I've heard from different pastors and different leaders is this truth that what God does in you, what he does in you, he wants to do through you, okay? Let that truth kind of settle in. What God has done in you, what has God done in you? If you were to give testimony this morning, what are the things that God has done in you? Well, whatever God has done in you, he wants to do through you. So we see ourselves in this man before he met Jesus. We see ourselves in this man after he met Jesus. And lastly, in closing this morning, where else do we see ourselves in this story? Well, we have to see ourselves in the crowd. In the previous story, when they're in the storm, on the lake, in the boat, 
it says that the disciples were very afraid. And then Jesus stands up and goes, he just basically says, shut up to the water and to the storm. It just stops. And immediately the water's like glass. And then it says something very interesting. Then the disciples were very afraid. So they went from being afraid of what was outside of the boat, the power of what was outside the boat, to, go, to being afraid of the power that was inside of the boat. And they ask this question. They say, who is this man? And they get their answer as soon as they walk off the boat. But it's from a demoniac who says, Jesus, you're the son of the most high God. And what's interesting is the exact same thing happens in this story. The townspeople are afraid of the demoniac, but after Jesus heals and delivers the demoniac, they're more afraid now. And they beg him to leave. Why? Why do they ask Jesus to leave? Well, I think there might be three reasons. One, I think there was a fear of that sort of power. They're like, we don't understand this power. We can't control this power. We don't trust this power. We need you to leave. Another thing is that they had just encountered a God who left them with more questions than answers. And they weren't comfortable with that. And so they wanted him to go. But I think there might be something else in this story too. Another reason why they wanted him to leave. It was because these 2,000 pigs rushed down this hill into the water. Now listen, in a, in, a, in a society that depends financially on the raising of animals, that was an unbelievable, an unbelievable financial loss. That was going to set that town back and set those people back for a long time. I bet there are times when if you had walked through the town and asked them, hey, that crazy man that's screaming out in the tombs, what would you do? What would you be willing to do to see him be better, to not be so crazy? I'm sure that people would say, I would do anything. I would do anything for that guy to not be the way he is. I would do anything for him to be restored. I would pay anything. But then when they see this happen, they say, well, I don't know about that. that. That was a high cost for this man to be free. We talk about as a church wanting to see gospel transformation in people's lives. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. But what if it's going to cost you something? What if it's going to cost you something to see other people's lives changed? Are you okay with it? Are you willing to pay any cost? If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was willing to pay the cost of his life and give his blood to rescue people like this demoniac, like you, like me, who are we to say, yeah, I want to see gospel transformation, but, but, not, but not, if it, not if it causes, not if it requires me to live more generously, not if it requires me to rearrange my schedule to invite more people into my life, not if it requires me to cross my street and meet my neighbor and ask him the simple question, what's your name? Not if it means I have to love people that bother me, not if it means that I have to give up my parking spot on a Sunday morning, not if it means if I have to give up my seat, not if it means if, I, if, I, if I'm part of a church that's growing and I don't know everyone's name anymore and I don't, I don't want that, I don't want that. Yes, we want gospel transformation, but not that, not that. Not if it means um, getting up an hour earlier on Sunday mornings in April to come and serve. Not if it costs me that. Yes, gospel transformation, but not at that cost. You're asking too much. Not if it means not seeing everybody anymore on Sunday mornings because we're in two different services. Yes, gospel transformation. Yes, 60,000 people who don't know Jesus, who if they died today would spend eternity apart from him. Yes, yes, we want to see them change, but not if it costs me a little bit of my personal convenience and preference. And that's why they begged Jesus to leave because they loved pigs more than people. They loved their stuff more than the kingdom of God. What is it going to take for us as a church to make space? We're going to have to people say, we're going to be people that say, even if it costs me something, we're going to make space for people. 
Last night, um, my girls and I, we rented the new Grinch movie from the Redbox, a cute, cute little movie, and we were watching it together, and at the end of the movie, of course, you guys know the Grinch, right? I'm not going to ruin the story for you. You've all seen it. Um, but at the end of the story, the Grinch, he, he, he makes right with him, and his heart grows back up to a normal size. And, and one of the final scenes, Cindy Lou Who, the little girl in the, in the movie, she invites Grinch over for Christmas dinner. And Grinch looks at her and goes, Me? And he lists off all the reasons why she shouldn't invite him in. I did this, I did this, I, 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 I stole your Christmas. And she said this line, and I was actually in the kitchen, but I heard it and it jumped out at me. He, he said, why would you invite me in? And she simply said this, because you've been alone for long enough. You've been alone for long enough. And that's our heart as a church. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we making space? Why are, why are we inconveniencing all of you and, 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 and all of us so that we can go to more? Why are we doing that? Why? Because there's people out there who have been, along for long enough, been alone for long enough. They have. They've been apart from Jesus for long enough. It's not okay. It can't be okay with us. Because Jesus, the same Jesus that walked into this man's life 2,000 years ago and set him free, he, he wants to walk into the life of people in your neighborhood, people in your workplace people in your family. And he wants to set them free because they've been alone long enough. It's time for them to come home. Let's pray.